We continue with our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. And we come today to Revelation chapters 8 and 9. And if you've been following this series, you know that back in chapter 6, we watched as the Lord Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, begins to open the seven seals of the scroll of God, his redemptive plan for human history. And we saw how part of that plan includes ever-increasing sin and wickedness and suffering, the four horsemen of the first four seals. It includes the persecution of the church and the souls of the martyrs of the fifth seal. Right, And those, those two things will happen right the way up until the return of Christ and the day of judgment, uh, the earthquake of the sixth seal. Last time we had a look at chapter 7, which forms a dramatic pause as John focuses in on the people of God, both before and after this time of tribulation on earth. And now we come to chapter 8, which finally describes the opening of the seventh seal. Now, we'll see in a moment that the opening of the seventh seal leads to the sounding of seven trumpets by seven angels. Uh, Here in chapters 8 and 9, we read about the sounding of six trumpets. And then again, there is a pause in chapter 10 before we read about the sounding of the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11. Uh, Then just to anticipate ourselves, later in chapter 16, we'll read about the pouring out of seven bowls on the earth. And once again, there is a short pause between the sixth and the seventh bowl. So just in terms of the structure of the book of Revelation, uh, you will see then that the seven bowls are inside the seven trumpets, which are inside the seven seals. It's a little bit like those Russian dolls that you get. The dolls fit inside each other, except in this case, the dolls get bigger as you go in, not smaller. Because as I mentioned last time, the seals affect one-fourth of the earth, the trumpets affect one-third of the earth, and the bowls affect the entire earth. Now some people see these events as being linear, that first the earth experiences the effects of the opening of the seven seals, and then the effects of the blowing of the trumpets, and then the effects of the pouring out of the bowls. But many Bible commentators see these as the same types of events, but described from different perspectives. And that makes sense if you think about it, because each sequence of seven ends with a description of the end of the world. And you can't have the end of the world happening again and again and again. The seals and the trumpets and the bowls describe the entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming from different perspectives, which means that they're not exact parallels either. Each time we see something different and we see something more about the end. It's a little bit like when you're watching a rugby game on television and someone scores a try. You have one of those action replays that show the try from this angle and that angle and from the try line and from above. And each time you see more of what took place. Chapters 8 and 9 are an action replay of chapter 6. We go back to the beginning again, but this time we see a little more of what takes place on earth before Christ's return. 
Uh, Let's have a look. Revelation chapter 8 from verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and the sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek Apollyon. The first woe is past, 
two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came smoke and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. This is God's word. It's not an easy passage to read. It's not an easy passage to listen to. But nevertheless, it forms part of God's word, which is breathed out and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what might God's word have to say to us today? Well, usually when we've studied these chapters, we've spent some time looking at the detail of the passage before stepping back to look at the overall message. Today I'd like us to do something slightly different, and I'd like us to focus on four main themes in these chapters. Because I think that in this case, being overly interested in the detail can sometimes obscure these vital messages. Remember that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book reveals something about him and his father, the one who sits on the throne. And here in chapters 8 and 9, we have revealed for us the God who hears, the God who judges, the God who warns, and the God who loves. Firstly, this passage reveals the God who hears and acts. Reading the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 8 will ensure that you never look at the church prayer meeting in quite the same way again. Have a look. We're told that another angel who had a golden censer, that's a golden bowl suspended by golden chains that he holds in his hand, He came and stood at the altar. This is the altar of chapter 6, under which are the souls of the martyrs. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Remember that the prayer of the martyrs is, How long, O Lord, until you come and vindicate us? It's parallel to the prayer, Your kingdom come. 
The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled with the incense and the prayers of the saints, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Something very dramatic happens in response to the prayers of God's people. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in his commentary on this passage. The prayers which had ascended, unremarked by the journalists of the day, returned with immense force in George Herbert's phrase as reversed thunder. Prayer re-enters history with incalculable effects. Our earth is shaken daily by it. The Apostle James reminds us that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Sometimes people uh, speak about prayer as if it's the last resort. They say things like, well, all we can do now is pray. But prayer isn't the last resort. It's the first resort and the continued resort. People don't wish for things. Prayer changes things. Prayer is God's ordained means to bring about change on earth. Sometimes God uses prayer to change us rather than to change the circumstances. But nonetheless, something happens when we pray. This past week, someone sent me a YouTube link to Michael Cassidy's documentary, The Threatened Miracle of South Africa's Democracy. It was in response to that song that I prayed by the Soweto Songsters uh, that was recorded the day of the Shell House massacre. And they said, don't you remember how prayer changed things in South Africa? Uh, you can watch it on YouTube for, for free. It's well worth watching. It just reminds us how prayer changed the course of the history of our nation back in 1994. You recall that before the first democratic elections, negotiations between the various parties broke down on several occasions. And during that extremely difficult time, the church prayed. Michael Cassidy and his organization, African Enterprise, organized several mass prayer meetings throughout the country. And many individual congregations, too, had been praying for peace. The most serious breakdown in negotiations took place just a few weeks before the elections were due to be held. The IFP and the ANC were at loggerheads, and there was the real possibility of civil war. Two international negotiators, Lord Carrington from the UK and Henry Kissinger from the USA, flew into the country to try and broker a peace deal. But after a few days, they gave up and left fearing for their lives. They literally stated that South Africa was facing an Armageddon. As they left, Chief Mangasutu Butelezi headed to Lanseria Airport to get on a plane to go and tell the Zulu nation in Natal that negotiations had failed and that armed conflict was the only option. The only African negotiator, Washington Okuma from Kenya, raced to the airport to try and beg Butelezi to return to the negotiation table. But he was too late. When he got to Lanseria, the airplane had already taken off. 
And in despair, Washington Akumu sat down at the coffee shop in Lanseria and wondered what to do next. Ten minutes later, Chief Butelezi's plane returned to Lanseria Airport. A gyroscope in the plane had malfunctioned, and international aviation regulations state that you can't fly with a faulty gyroscope. The plane landed, and Mangasuti Butelezi found Washington Okuma sipping his coffee in the coffee shop, and he sat down with him, and Professor Okuma persuaded Butelezi to return to negotiations. A final settlement was reached just six days before the polls opened. On inspection, the ground staff at Lanseria Airport could find nothing wrong with that gyroscope. <laughs> or think of the fall of the Berlin Wall just a few years before our own miracle. It started with four churches in Leipzig, East Germany, holding weekly prayer meetings, followed by the congregations walking down the main street of the city, holding candles and singing hymns. It started with a small group of people, which grew to hundreds, then thousands, then hundreds of thousands, until on the 9th of November 1989, over a million people marched down the main street. And at midnight, the unthinkable happened. A gap opened in the Berlin Wall. The wall fell without a shot being fired. And later, similar nonviolent protests took place in nine other communist countries. As one writer put it, the Cold War ended not in a nuclear inferno, but in a blaze of candles in the churches of Eastern Europe. In one of his books on pastoral ministry, Eugene Peterson said that often as a pastor, someone would come up to him before a meeting or a meal and say, Reverend, would you get things started for us with a little prayer? And he said he always had to fight the temptation not to shout, No, I will not. There are no little prayers. Prayer enters the lion's den, brings us before the holy, where it is uncertain whether we will come back alive or sane, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Prayer is powerful. The God who hears and acts. Secondly, these chapters reveal the God who judges. Now, we don't like this picture of God. C.S. Lewis, the Cambridge professor and former atheist, once put it this way. We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day a good time was had by all. Lewis wrote those words over 80 years ago. But sadly, that picture of God continues on in human minds and tragically is often perpetuated by the church itself. The German theologian Richard Niebuhr summed up the parody that the modern gospel has become in this way. He says, the modern gospel says that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. 
And while God is indeed love, we also need to remind ourselves in the words of Hebrews chapter 12 that our God is a consuming fire and that Jesus himself said, I have come to bring fire on the earth. We don't like this picture of a God who judges, but boy, do we need it. Do you realize that Joseph Stalin died in his sleep? He was responsible for 20 million deaths in the Soviet Republic, yet he died peacefully in his sleep. Is that justice? You see, having a God who ignores my wrongdoing sounds great until I realize then that that means that God would have to ignore everybody's wrongdoing, including the wrongdoing that is done against me. And so in his book on Revelation, the Canadian pastor Daryl Johnson puts it this way, judgment says God cares. Judgment says that we and our choices matter to God. Judgment says God takes evil and sin seriously. Judgment says God is not indifferent to nor tolerant of evil and sin. Judgment says that God moves against evil and sin. What, what is the nature of God's judgment that we see in this passage? We don't have time to look at all of the detail. Uh, but notice that the first four trumpets are grouped together, again mirroring the pattern that we saw in the seven seals. And notice too that these judgments are very reminiscent of the plagues on Egypt, where God brought his judgment on all of the Egyptian gods. So trumpet one in verse seven is hail and fire mixed with blood, and one third of the earth and its vegetation are burned as well as all the grass. Trumpet two, verses eight and nine, a huge mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea, and one third of the sea and its creatures and its ships are affected. Trumpet three in verse 10, a great star called Wormwood fell from the sky, and one third of the rivers and the springs of water are poisoned. In trumpet four, one third of the sun and the moon and the stars are darkened, disrupting the natural rhythm of day and night. Again, these are word pictures uh, symbolizing the types of things that will happen before Christ returns. And these judgments show us something of the depth and the devastating effects of human sin. That when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, there was a rupture in the entire cosmos. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans speaks about the whole creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, waiting to be liberated from its bondage to decay. And John witnessed the cosmic disturbances of sin in his own day with the great earthquake of A.D. 62 and the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in A.D. 79 when that great pall of smoke blotted out the sun. And human sinfulness and selfishness continues to do damage to the created order. A few weeks ago, I read an article in the British newspaper, The Guardian, that said that for the first time, scientists had discovered microplastics in the placentas of unborn human babies. One of the scientists was quoted as saying that babies are now being born pre-polluted. These microplastics have been found everywhere that scientists have looked 
deep oceans, Arctic snow, Antarctic ice, shellfish, table salt, drinking water, drifting into the air, falling with the rain over mountains and cities. A third of the sea, a third of the living things in the sea, a third of the waters. Add to that global warming, deforestation, pollution, vanishing coral reefs, and you will see that these verses are not describing things that are to happen in some distant future. We then have the the fifth trumpet at the beginning of chapter 9, which moves from the earth to the inhabitants on the earth, or rather just one group of these inhabitants. The fifth trumpet mirrors the fifth seal. Remember, the fifth seal described the martyrs, those who'd been slain because of the word of God. Now the fifth trumpet describes what happens to the opposite group, to those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads those who are not indwelt by the Spirit of God or kept by the power of God. We have these locusts, which are clearly not literal locusts because they don't eat the grass or the vegetation, but rather harm those who are not sealed with their scorpion-like tails. I don't think we're intended to try and find meaning in every single detail of this vision, but rather that all of the details together, the crowns, the faces, hair, teeth, breastplates, wings, tails, stings, all add together to form one horrific picture. It's the overall picture that has meaning rather than the individual details. And while there's much that we don't understand here, we can say that this judgment against unbelievers is satanic in nature. It's led by a fallen angel from the abyss called Abaddon or Apollyon, the destroyer. This satanic attack makes people feel like they've been stung by a scorpion and makes them wish that they were dead. And also that it has a limited time period, five months, symbolizing a relatively short period. You may have heard the phrase, the devil takes care of his own. Well, these verses tell us that that is utterly false. Satan's character has not changed. He seeks, in the words of Jesus himself, to steal, kill, and destroy even the wicked people on the earth. And whether these verses are speaking about the occult or false religion or the devastating effects of drug addiction, uh, philosophies that say life is meaningless, men and women meddle with these satanic powers. And they are not cute or tame or fun, as is so often portrayed in our television programs and movies. They are devastating and ruin the lives of those who do not follow Christ. As one pastor puts it, those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads are in the greatest danger imaginable. They are prone to unique onslaught from the demonic, for which chilling words like torture, verse 5, or torment, verse 10, are not inappropriate. The only people on the planet for whom the world is a safe place are those who belong to Christ. And then finally, we have the sounding of the sixth sixth trumpet from verse 14, and the, the release of the four angels at the great river Euphrates, who unleash a huge army that kills a third of mankind. The location of this army seems significant. Uh, The furthest borders of the Roman Empire, where Rome had fought an ongoing battle with the Parthians. 
And Rome had always worried about what would happen if the great barbarian horde ever managed to overwhelm her. And this seems to be the picture then, not of that actual event, but of forces of evil that overrun the world, causing huge amounts of casualties. Again, something we've seen repeated through history in wars and famine and plague. I think it's safe to say that these judgments are not to be seen in terms of God inflicting things upon the earth, but more in terms of his allowing us to inflict things upon the earth and upon ourselves. The disruptions that we see in the world around us today are as of a result of our own greed and selfishness. Men and women rebel against God and his reign and push God away and push God away. And eventually God gives us what we want, which is the most frightening thing that God can ever give us. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. The God who judges... Thirdly, these chapters reveal the God who warns. In the Old Testament, trumpets were often used to sound a warning. I think of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, who's commissioned by God as a watchman, and God describes the job description. He sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people. These judgments that come on earth are not the final judgment. That comes with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. But these judgments are a warning that final judgment is coming. That Jesus interpreted the disasters of his own day in this way as a warning. In Luke chapter 13, some people come to Jesus and tell him about a massacre of Galileans at the temple. And Jesus says to those who are listening, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all of the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So notice then the sovereignty of God in this passage. The judgments that come on earth are not sent by him. They are horrific And yet God uses these judgments to warn, to lead men and women to repentance. That's the goal. We read about that in the last verses of the passage. The warnings don't bring about the intended goal, but we we see what the purpose was. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. God's desire is that these warnings will cause people to repent, which means to turn around. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 33, we read, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, 
Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? On the 11th of December, 1984, dense fog descended on a section of the M25, that great highway outside London uh, that uh, encircles London. Hazard warning lights came on as soon as the fog descended, but they were ignored by most drivers. At 6.15 in the morning, a lorry carrying huge rolls of paper was involved in an accident and burst into flames. And within minutes, the whole carriage was engulfed in carnage. A police patrol uh, was soon on the scene, and two uniformed officers ran back up the motorway to try and stop the oncoming traffic. They waved their arms and shouted, but most drivers ignored them took no notice, raced on towards the disaster that awaited them in the fog. The policemen then picked up traffic cones and started flinging them at car windscreens in a desperate attempt to warn the drivers of the danger ahead. One of the policemen told how tears were streaming down his face as car after car went by and he waited for the sickening sound of the impact as they hit the growing mass of wreckage further down the road. The things that we see on our news bulletins every evening all scream a warning at us. Something is wrong. You are going down the wrong road. You need to turn around. In one of his books, C.S. Lewis put it this way, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And sometimes God can even use our own personal circumstances in this way. Again, not that he wills the evil in our lives, but he can use it for good to draw us more closely to himself. The God who warns. Finally, these chapters reveal to us the God who loves. You might think, well, wait a minute, I thought that these chapters revealed the God who judges. There doesn't seem to be a great deal of love in this passage. But God's love and his justice are not incompatible. And his love is clearly seen here if we look closely enough. We began the reading in chapter 8 and verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal. Who is the he who opens the seal? It is the lamb who was slain, our Lord Jesus. Remember that I said that God's love and wrath are not incompatible. God is a God of wrath and a God of love. And on the cross of Jesus, the lamb who was slain, God's wrath and mercy meet. God's wrath is displayed His personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. And God's love is displayed in that he takes that wrath upon himself in the person of his son Jesus. We see God's love in these chapters because the one who opens the scroll and unleashes God's judgment has taken that full judgment upon himself on the cross for us so that we don't have to. 
Which means, as one writer puts it, that the only way to flee from God is to flee to God, to receive his mercy and his forgiveness. The God who hears and acts, the God who judges, the God who warns, and the God who loves. And so we come to the pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And you and I, in fact, live in that gap between the trumpets. We hear the six trumpets blowing right now, warning us that the final trumpet will one day sound, and it will be all over. We will face God. And how then do we respond? How do we live between the trumpets? Firstly, you and I need to repent. We need to repent of our idolatry of anything that we've put in first place in our lives instead of Jesus. We need to repent of our sexual immorality, our anger, murder in our hearts, and our theft. We need to repent of anything and everything that is contrary to God's will and his way. We need to repent and keep on repenting. Secondly, we need to pray. We need to pray for our world, for men and women who this week face a new COVID variant and all sorts of other private tragedies with no saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to pray for family members, for friends, for neighbors, for work colleagues, that God would lead them to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. And thirdly, we need to witness That's the message of chapters 10 and 11, which, God willing, we'll get to after my sabbatical. But like Ezekiel, we too have been committed and commissioned by God to blow the trumpet and sound the warning. God comes to Ezekiel and to us and says, I've made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. Living between the trumpets, we repent, we pray, and we witness. May God grant that he gives us the courage and strength to do that in the week that lies ahead. Amen.